2: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, June 22nd. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a new health care report ranks Mississippi at the bottom for health system performance. Then women in the state face a high rate of complications during pregnancy. Plus, a Mississippi student has won a national podcasting competition. A new report from the Commonwealth Fund, a private nonprofit healthcare research agency named Mississippi last in the nation for health system performance. The report examines all facets of the healthcare field, including outcomes, response to the pandemic, and access to care. Joseph Bedencourt is president of the Commonwealth Fund. He says the 2023 scorecard can help states understand where they are succeeding and where they're falling behind.
0: Between 2019 and 2021, premature deaths rose in every state. Most of this increase can be attributed to the pandemic. More than 1.3 million Americans died from coronavirus and about a third of those deaths were among people under age 75. We also know that pandemic era disruptions led to people with chronic illnesses, delaying or completely foregoing routine care and disease management activities contributing further to the trends we see here. While rates were up in all states, Arizona, Louisiana, Mississippi, New Mexico, and Texas saw the largest increases in premature avoidable deaths, with rates climbing by 35% or more across the two years shown here.
2: The report also focused on how states compare in providing reproductive, and women's health care. Mississippi fell at the bottom of the list in this category. Lori Zeffrin is Senior Vice President of Advancing Health Equity. She says the data they are sharing could be a valuable tool for lawmakers and voters who want a better health system.
3: Right now, we see wide state variations in, uh, in reproductive care and women's health outcomes. And ultimately, we see states with the worst outcomes are also implementing and considering further restrictions on reproductive care. And this really raises concerns about inequity in access and inequity in health, health outcomes. So as we think about how to protect women's ability to access reproductive health care, we have to promote policies and innovative payment models and digital tools that can really support the continuum of reproductive and women's health care. Additionally, we know that change happens on the ground, particularly at the community level where birthing people seek and, and, and um, receive services. And so increasing funding and support to community-led organizations focused on advancing maternal health outcomes is also critical. We all we know solutions around expanding and diversifying the maternal health care workforce critical incorporating midwives doulas maternal health coordinators investing in the in the um obgyn workforce are, are important as well and having payment models that can support this team based care can really address um, help reverse these trends additionally we know that health is beyond the four walls of the healthcare system we understand the impacts of the drivers of health and really focusing on increasing economic and social supports for children and women is going to be really important particularly extending paid family leave, tax credits, unemployment compensation, child care and affordable housing assistance, for example, are all key, key support factors that can really help reverse these trends.
2: That's Lori Zephyrin with the Commonwealth Fund. Many states throughout the Southeast rank low on the health care report, and researchers say that isn't a coincidence. Senior scholar Sarah Collins says the most common factor among low-ranking states is not expanding Medicaid.
3: One of the most important things that these states can do, and they're all they all share this characteristics, they are not their Medicaid non-expansion states. So expanding their Medicaid programs would be the first step towards improving their their health system performance. Um, I'll give an example of Mississippi. Thirty percent of people under with incomes under two hundred percent of poverty, which is about fifty five thousand for a family of four, are uninsured. That is extremely high. Um, that also means that there are wide disparities um, between lower income people and higher income people in nearly all these states on measures of access, both uninsured um, but also measures of um, not getting not getting health care because of cost. So that would be one of the first things um, that that states states can do
2: to improve the, their health system. Collins also says the ending of federal COVID-19 policies will continue to affect health outcomes in the years to come. And up next, women in Mississippi face a high rate of complications during pregnancy. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
1: The Radio Reading Service of Mississippi provides print-impaired Mississippians with news, information, and entertainment. To learn more or to see if you qualify, call 601-432-6301.
2: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Olympic athlete Tori Bowie is reported to have died due to pregnancy complications. The gold medalist for Mississippi's death is sparking renewed calls to invest in women's health care. Women in Mississippi are at severe risk for complications during pregnancy. Medical experts say the most common risk factor – Facing the population is obesity, which can lead to compounding illnesses. Getty Israel is founder of the women's health clinic, Sisters in Birth. She says preventative health care is the answer.
4: Women in Mississippi, especially black women and low-income white women, we often ignore low-income white women, but they have some of the same problems affecting them. But the health care system that all women are going through is not designed to address underlying risk factors for any part of our gen- of our of our population, not the general or the pregnant population. When you're dealing with a population, many of whom are not getting regular health care, like primary health care, the whole purpose of primary health care is to address underlying risk factors. Primary prevention focuses on the individual's lifestyle. All right, you have people who go in once a year and they get their numbers. They realize they have elevated blood pressure, glucose, cholesterol. What does a doctor do in most cases? Look at the labs, maybe write a prescription. 75% of the time a person leaves a doctor's office with a prescription. That's why so many people see doctors as drug dealers because they're just writing prescriptions. When you look at our FQHC, federally qualified health centers, you look at the clinical data, what you pretty much see are a lot of chronic diseases that are preventable from hypertension to diabetes pre-diabetes, heart disease, and strokes, all of these conditions are preventable in both populations, the general and the pregnant population. So when a woman in Mississippi's general population becomes pregnant, there's a good chance she has some of those risk factors for those diseases. She may already have, may already be pre-hypertensive or diabetic. She may be a year from having a heart attack because none of the underlying risk factors have been addressed. And in Mississippi, the number one risk factor for women there are two. Uh, for black women, it's being overweight and obese. For white women, it is tobacco. It's also drug use. It's also sexually transmitted infections. We have, I think, the highest uh, syphilis, syphilis rate among babies that are being born here. All of these are associated with behavior, with lifestyle. There's some things that a doctor simply can't help you to cure, And right? He can put you on the right path and tell you you have elevated blood pressure And you need to make some lifestyle changes like basic things, changing your diet, walking, exercising, getting the excess weight off your body. But what we find is doctors, our providers, aren't doing that. For various reasons, they are not doing that. So our healthcare system doesn't invest in prevention. The state of Mississippi is not investing in prevention. When you look at the money that our state legislative body decided to do, and that was to give a $3 million, I think, tax credit to organizations that invest in anti-abortion uh, so-called crisis centers that don't provide any of the services that women need, besides ensuring that they don't get an abortion, besides maybe giving them diapers and maybe a pregnancy test, held all the things that I do and much, much more in my clinic, and yet my organization could not qualify for that tax credit. So I think politics is really getting in the way. Uh, lack of understanding about public health is really getting in the way. A refusal of our healthcare system and of our state leaders to adopt evidence-based strategies that we know work.
2: Israel says allowing obesity to go untreated can increase the risk of developing type 2 diabetes.
4: We live in a diabetes belt. The whole state is a diabetes belt, according to the CDC. I think that means like 17 percent or maybe it's 11 percent of the population has a diagnosis for diabetes. So where are the diabetes prevention programs that both general population, preconception population, population, the prenatal population, and the postpartum population would benefit from. Again, we don't invest in prevention. So the people who are in positions of power, who are running our state government, making decisions are the very people who are less likely to invest in preventive-based care because, as we know, there's more money in treating diseases. There's more money in managing a disease than there is in preventing a disease. I think we are very fortunate to have Dr. Edney as our state health officer, but only recently he tried to get money to hire an additional 100 nurses for his pregnancy uh, home visitation program, and he was turned down. That is the same health department that Republicans severely cut the budget, what, like three times over, what, the last 10 years, forcing county health departments to close, providing prenatal care to a population that resides in a state where 50 percent of the counties are maternity deserts.
2: One major part of the solution to preventative health care during pregnancy is education, says Israel.
4: And the whole approach to pregnancy is medicalized, where it's treated like a disease, even in women who have no diseases even in women who have no maternal complications. Women are not being educated about pregnancy. Why didn't that young lady who died recently, the Olympic star, why didn't she know the signs and symptoms associated with maternal mortality? Every pregnant woman should know that. I'll tell you why she didn't know, because nobody told her, because doctors don't educate their patients. They wait until things happen, and hopefully you can get into the clinic or get to the ER in time to intervene for an intervention to save your life she should have known what to expect in her eighth month pregnancy she should have known what those warning signs looked like for preeclampsia, for hypertension eclampsia for heart disease for stroke and when to go to the er i meet many patients who don't know anything about the prenatal process because they are like products on an assembly machine or system, and our healthcare system is that assembly machine, and they're just on a conveyor belt going through this big system, and they're just numbers going through a system, and everybody's treated the same. Well, you may get 10, 15 minutes of interaction with your doctor. What are you going to learn in 10 or 15 minutes? Many women are on their own with respect to learning about prenatal health they're on their own with to childbirth education. And so all of these things could be addressed through primary prevention. And then you have so many women who become pregnant and haven't had a well woman's visit in three, four years. They have no idea what underlying issues are taking place in their body. You have women who won't get the COVID vaccine that puts them at risk because of misinformation. Ignorance or lack of information on the patient's part, a state and a healthcare system that does not invest in primary prevention. So maybe disease is just big business and premature death is big business for the players, for the stakeholders who are making decisions that refuse to really invest in the public's health, whether it's the the general population or the pregnant population, because the pregnant population is nothing more than a microcosm of the general population. So if our general population is sick and unhealthy, why would we expect our pregnant population to be healthy?
2: When we come back, a high school student from Mississippi wins a national podcasting competition. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks to our sustaining members who provide ongoing monthly financial support. You can become a sustainer, too. Go to mpbonline.org and click Donate Now at the top of the page.
4: AutoCorrect on MPB Think Radio, helping you correct your auto problems. Our host is Coach Charlie Milton, ASC Certified Master Technician.
5: Let me help save you some money working on your cars. Listen to our podcast, AutoCorrect.
4: This is MPB Think
2: Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A Mississippi high school student has won a national podcasting competition sponsored by NPR. Georgina McKinney is an incoming senior at the Mississippi School of Math and Science. Her English teacher, Thomas Easterling, says her podcast was part of a year-long assignment to profile the unique places across the state.
1: University composition classes here at MSMS teach all different modes of writing, but the capstone of the course involves a research paper that requires primary documents research. And after students have submitted it, they can choose a track. Do they want to be script writers and turn their research paper into a a script for a podcast, or do they want to produce? and this year we had i think 36 students who submitted their work as podcasts to the student podcast challenge
2: wow that's a lot
1: oh it it was wonderful uh you know because MSMS is a residential program and we have students from all over the state they have an incredibly diverse array of interests Uh, their their hometowns are all wonderfully different and when I create these research papers I feel like I'm I'm touring Mississippi and I get to see what life is like in all these places that I haven't necessarily been to but now I want to go they that the students have done everything from looking at water quality to stray dogs to the pocket museum at Hattiesburg they, they have interests that are as diverse as they are, and the podcast itself this year looks at everything from the state line mob from the 1970s up in northeast Mississippi to you know the, the wait-ins in Biloxi in the 1960s. So we, we literally have every part of the state covered this year.
5: Mariah starts her day by going to the bathroom to check if her water pressure is working before getting ready for school. As she turns the handle, no water comes from the faucet. And so she looks under her sink for a water bottle to find out that there are none left. She sighs, picks up her phone, and dials to high school. Hello? The counselor is speaking. Hey, I'm calling to tell you that my water pressure has been low the entire weekend, and hygiene has been hard. I ain't going to be able to come to school today.
2: That's a segment from The Real Mississippi Podcast, produced by student Georgina McKinney. She speaks with our Kobe Vance about her time researching and putting together the award-winning podcast. I really
5: enjoy the works of Angie Thomas and what she um, is about. And so through her, I wrote at the beginning of school year most of my research on her. But also through Angie Thomas, I started shifting towards the um, culture of Jackson. And then throughout that, I started looking at the Jackson Water Crisis because it's so much you can talk about in the podcast it can only be eight l- minutes. I had to limit exactly what I want to say. And so while I first chose to um, talk about the systemic issues with the Jackson Water Crisis, I then moved over to who exactly, you know, is left behind in the you know water crisis. Like who's not talked about. In the media, so I settled on the disabled, the elderly, and children in the school because I never hear anything um, regarding them towards this water crisis. And then that just left it to being children because I could relate to them, and it would be the easiest thing for me to talk about. And you know, find people who want to talk to me because I have um, cousins who are in the Jackson school system, so I could pull you know information from them and talk to administration.
0: What did it mean to you to be able to tell a story that you felt was being left out?
5: I mean, the Jackson Water Crisis is similar to so many other um, issues that are happening around in America. Like, thinking about the Jackson Water Crisis it reminds me of Flint-Michigan Water Crisis. People know about the Flint-Michigan Water Crisis, so I was hoping that, you know, they would know about the Jackson Water Crisis because I remember I was talking to my friend who doesn't live in the state of Mississippi, and I had brought up the Jackson Water Crisis, and I, she didn't exactly know what it was. And I was like, oh, that's shocking because I thought at least— um people in the southern region of the United States wouldn't know what the Jackson Water crisis was. Um I was shocked um to see that someone who's also in the South didn't know what it was. I was like, oh this should be talked about more because it seems that maybe only people in the U- Mississippi know what it's about. So I wanted to further that out and specifically, you know, education and how that's dealing with because the youth is, you know, the next generation of Jackson so if they're not getting in school and they you know they need it can have you know have consequences.
0: Was there anything that you uncovered doing your research that you thought was interesting and something unique to students?
5: One thing I learned when I um, talked to an administrator at Jackson in the Jackson Public School System was that schools will sometimes combine themselves. So one school will come to the other school. And I thought that was really interesting because that's just an overflow of students. I was wondering, like, how exactly do they um, accomplish their work? How are the students taking it? You know, there's an overflow um, is work actually being accomplished because your whole day has been uprooted because now you have to work from the bottom up you have to find your classes you have to pay attention and I mean it's just a lot and then from the interview I had recently done I found information from my cousin and she was talking about how it never occurred to my head that they would just merge schools I just thought that if the water pressure wasn't good in one school they would just shut down and go virtual and so they know that they'll like combine and do that. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. It should be talked about.
0: You also go into the concerns that are extending beyond just the classrooms. Right off the top, a student can't, you give a scenario where a student can't even go to class that day because they can't get a shower. Mm-hmm. What, tell us a little bit more about that. What were the conversations you had when, you know, digging into it?
5: My teacher recommended to me to start the, to start my um, podcast with, um, like, a day in a life. So I chose to do a day in a life of a student. Well, this isn't particularly a real student. It was just something that an administrator told me. And that's why I used it. And she had told me that some students won't come into school because they don't have the water necessary to um, perform basic hygiene. And so I was like, oh, that should be included, and I want to include it. I that was a great point to lead with. And so I started off with that. I knew that students didn't have water, but I didn't exactly expect them not to come to school because they couldn't perform basic hygiene. I just thought it would like affect how the school would close down. And so knowing that some students aren't coming to school because, well, they don't have the water necessary to clean themselves. And I want to add that into the podcast.
0: What does it mean to you to have your story recognized on the national level from NPR but also to be able to have your story out there to more audiences so you can help share what's going on in Jackson.
5: It does mean a lot to me. When I first started my podcast, I didn't think I was the right person to tell it. And I believe the story should be told, but I didn't think, uh, I don't know, if I should say it. So knowing that it's out there and that more people can know about how children are being affected by this, um, I hope maybe some change the start I don't think it'll start because of the podcast but I do hope people um will listen and they'll become interested in the Jackson Wire crisis and maybe I don't know they'll start doing some research on it maybe just read like a quick article or maybe they'll just listen to it and they'll just know it's happening. I think that's
2: enough just to know what exactly is happening because this is serious and it's been happening for a while. Georgina McKinney is a student at the Mississippi School of Math and Science. She won first place in a podcast competition sponsored by NPR about the Jackson water crisis. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.